Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you, and I'm excited uh, for our title today and our theme, which is a part two of 10 Timeless Axioms of Emotionally Healthy Leadership. Now, these 10 have stood the test of time over the last almost three decades. They've become anchors for people to keep us uh, rooted in a deep biblical theology as we live and lead for Jesus. And again, for some of you, it's gonna be a great introduction uh, into our whole ecosystem and this wide theology of emotionally healthy leadership and discipleship. But for others of you who've been around a while, it's gonna give you a nice broad lens and hopefully some, some hooks so you can uh, have that theology at your fingertips as you hit stressful, difficult situations. So again, I prayer is that, that these truths will deeply penetrate your soul and spirit, and you'll dig into them more deeply on your own. Now, our vision or our calling uh, at Emotionally at the Discipleship is to radically renew the church. Uh, and we do that by addressing the crisis of shallow discipleship through training a new generation of pastors and leaders. And so we're mentoring uh, pastors and leaders by combining two things, a monastic slowdown spirituality on the one hand and emotional health on the other. Why? For deep transformation in your personal lives, in your marriage or singleness, in your teams, and in your entire ministry for the sake of Jesus's mission in the world. So towards that, we do a variety of things uh, as a ministry to help make that happen. One of which we call the School of Emotionally Healthy Leadership. Now we've been doing this uh, school for the last uh, three years, but this is the first year we're actually opening it up to the wider uh, pastors around the world. It's for pastors and leaders, especially lead pastors, executive pastors, denominational leaders, uh, movement leaders. I actually lead this course through Zoom. It's a two-semester spiritual formation journey, so you can actually live out the truths that you're hearing about in this podcast and you're reading about in books like The Emotionally Leader, Emotionally Discipleship, uh, and you don't just preach it, but it actually embodies, it's, it's in your being. And uh, so the goals of this school, uh, again, it's two eight-week semesters, is that you'll slow down your life, actually, to with Jesus for silence and stillness and scripture, that you'll practice Sabbath delight and rhythms. The goals include applying a genogram theology to your personal formation and your leadership, identifying really significant areas of vulnerability for yourself. You'll, you'll transform the leading of your team and your whole ministry culture by mastering what we call emotionally healthy relationship skills like clean fighting and stop mind reading and clarify expectations. You'll learn to be present with yourself and of your interior world, what's going on there emotionally, so that you can discern what's God saying and doing through me. Uh, you'll learn to mentor other leaders uh, by building a, a deeply transformative leadership development culture. And then by God's grace, you'll redefine your whole scorecard for leadership success. You'll get freed. And so uh, it's a mentoring course, actually, and we meet at 28 plus different tables. There's limited space. You have to apply to actually get in. So uh, again, it's for pastors and leaders who are hungry and eager to grow. Uh, and it's a 
the school of emotional leadership is so you can live out EHD. So again, if you're in other parts of the world like the UK or Europe, we've got some tables meeting in that part of the world, Australia, New Zealand on your time zone tables there, and we've got a number of tables that meet in Spanish as well. Again, I lead it. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash leadership school. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash leadership school. And you'll see the application there and you'll want to pray and discern. Might God be inviting you to apply. All right. With that, let's jump into the 10 timeless axioms of emotionally healthy leadership that have stood the test of time. Actually, I have 10 others, but these are the 10 top ones, uh, and they succinctly capture in a memorable way the profound biblical truths I believe that we're called to carry as a movement out into the world. So let me list the first five that we dealt with in the last podcast, and then I'll move into numbers six through 10. So the first five from podcast number one are axiom number one, it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Number two, second axiom, our doing for Jesus must flow out of our being with Jesus. Axiom truth number three, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Axiom number four, you cannot give what you do not possess. And finally, we dealt with the fifth axiom in the last podcast, God's will often comes disguised in our limits. So each one of those is large, wide, and revolutionary when we allow them to deeply penetrate our lives and our bones. So let's move now to the sixth timeless axiom of emotionally healthy leadership. Silence, number six. Silence is God's first language. Silence is God's first language. Now that phrase is not original with me. Uh, I know it was used by John of the Cross in the 1500s. He was a Spanish Carmelite monk. Uh, and it's very likely it was used and spoken by others before him uh, in the Middle Ages and by the early church fathers or desert fathers and mothers. Now, just think about this, and it came out of this understanding that the universe is vast, and before God spoke the universe into being, there was silence. Before God said, let there be, there was silence. In fact, think of it for a moment. If the uh, universe is 13.8 billion years old, just think of those James Webb telescope images coming at us. It's out of the vast silence God speaks. And silence, in a sense, is God's first language. And very often, if you're like me, I I had got in a box of how he spoke to me and how he was going to speak to me. And silence was definitely not in my formation or my background at all. In fact, it wasn't a prophetic word or coming out of scripture. If there wasn't some kind of jolt in my system, some intense Bible study or new insight, God wasn't, I, I didn't see it as God speaking to me. But the story of uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is such a powerful story that brings out this truth. Uh, if you remember, uh, Elijah was running for his life from Jezebel and, uh, and he was exhausted. And the Lord tells him to go and stand on the mountain in, the, in his presence and that the, God, the Lord's about to pass by. And then this, the text says there's a powerful wind tore the mountains apart, but the Lord was not in uh, 
and shattered, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came a powerful earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. After that, the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire came, it's often translated a gentle whisper, but in the original Hebrew, it reads in, a, uh, in the sound of sheer silence, God came. And then at that point, Elijah somehow hears God, you know, in the, in the sound of sheer silence. Now, what's interesting is that in the past, God has come as a wind. You know, in Pentecost, he comes as a wind in Job. He comes as an earthquake on Mount Sinai. He comes as fire in the burning bush to Moses. But these were all marks of how God had moved in the past. But now God's saying, don't look to the past and the predictability and safety of the past. I'm doing a new thing. And Elijah learned that God comes as well in the sound of sheer silence. Uh, and, and it's been rightly said that without silence and solitude, it's virtually impossible to grow in the spiritual life. Now, this is incredibly difficult for us to hear who have been immersed in Western culture uh, because we can't sit still internally or externally. We have distractions. And I like what Dallas Willard said. He, he wrote that silence and solitude are, are the most radical Christian disciplines for any Western Christian. And Elijah models for us something here about because he walked away from people into solitude and he went into the emptiness of the desert for silence. And, uh, and silence is, about pra- is, is, about, is really a spiritual practice of quieting every inner and outer noise so we can attend to God. Now, studies say that the average uh, group can only bear 15 seconds of silence. And that surely applies to most ch- churches. It's rare to have silence in our churches. Yet, every one of us, every human being, I don't care what your age, your background, our, something deep in our souls longs for silence and stillness. We were created for it. A part of our being was created for silence. And even Elijah has tremendous problems. He's got tremendous problems. The most powerful person in the world at his time, which was Jezebel, was out to kill him. Uh, and behind her was a demonic power. You think you've got problems. But who knows what he would have done if he hadn't gotten away for silence and solitude. Who knows? Maybe he would have plotted a revolution. Maybe he would have killed himself. He was suicidal. Maybe he would have hidden in disguises or been bitter or moved to another, to Africa. But he ends up, got, in, in the silence, God speaks to him. It's quite a mystery there how that happens. And he goes out and he anoints three people and the great things happen. God guides his activity. But the activity he does came out of his silence. How many of us have made, have made decisions that we regretted later because we didn't stop and be silent before the Lord? But when you get to silence, you find yourself available in a new way. I know that that's my biggest thing about silence. And I, I, I do it daily in the morning and midday, evening. I, uh, the practice of silence is so key because so many times when I'm silent and still before God, I realize, oh, Pete, why are you going down this road? And I get so much clearer direction without even asking for it. It just comes. I like what one of the desert fathers said. He said it well. He goes, any trial that comes to you can be conquered by silence. Think about that one. Any trial that comes to you can be conquered by silence. Uh, At least a lot of trials anyway. All right. That's number six. Silence is God's first language. Seventh timeless axiom of emotional healthy leadership is this. The body is a major, not a minor prophet. The body is a major, not a minor prophet. Now, I was taught not to listen to my body or even do feelings, especially anger, sadness, and fear, because I was taught over and over again certain verses like Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. 
who can know it? Or, in you dwelleth no good things. In, or in Romans 7, in me dwelleth no good things. And that applied to emotions. And don't listen to your body or emotions. And so the focus of my spiritual life with God was upward and outward. I was about managing externals. Grow our church. Reach people for Jesus. Release others into leadership and ministry. Be a better leader. But I didn't realize that a relationship with Jesus required listening to the Holy Spirit, God, inside of me through my feelings and through my body. And so as a Christian leader, I I was more equipped to arrange organizational charts and solve problems and do things. I wasn't, and that was easier than taking the difficult journey of going inward and listening. So I didn't. I rarely looked at the inner chaos that was my thoughts and feelings and the very thought of going down that road of being reflective or self-reflective was frightening to me. I, I had so much bottled up in my body and in my emotions that I feared that if I allowed myself to feel, a dam would break in my interior life and I'd never get it back. Uh, I sincerely believe that it was more godly to suppress what's happening in my emotions or in my body uh, and just be thinking of heaven and things above. The problem with this is that it's not biblical and we miss God speaking as a result because God made us whole beings with an emotional component. He made us, we're in the flesh. Uh, I think of Job, uh, 35 chapters crying out to God. I think of David, two thirds of the Psalms are laments. Jeremiah, man of sorrows. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, a person fully alive, Jesus. The book, you know, again, the whole book of Lamentations. And it's fascinating that we can observe people doing this throughout scripture, but we somehow don't imagine it applies to us. Again, Job ranting, Jeremiah's depression, Moses' anguish. And, and, so, and the second problem is that without emotions, without feeling, uh, there is no love. And I just started listing a few, I, you know, people, you know, I think of folks, Christians, you know, and telling me about, I'm driving around with a baseball bat because I want to kill somebody, you know, or I'm always, my my whole posture is I'm always fighting with the gloves on, or I'm, I'm, I'm real, so angry. Like, I'm going to go find that person, which is really sad, or, or medicating, another person medicating pain with, again, addictive behavior. And uh, so, again, we, we talk a lot about the body is a is a major, not a minor prophet. What we mean by that is that we want to listen to God from the inside out. That includes our body. And so as I talked with, again, a pastor recently who was so exhausted, I was trying to say to him, listen, God's saying something to you through your exhaustion and your tiredness about not take, not going into another new initiative uh, that's going to exhaust you even further, that, that this is an opportunity to listen. I wasn't telling him what to do, but to at least to listen to his tiredness emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. And so we talk a lot about Ignatian spirituality and discernment here on this podcast. And I actually talked about it uh, in the podcast I did recently on sharpening your decision making. Uh, So you might want to look at that three-part podcast when you get a chance. Because when we don't listen to our bodies, we often miss God. I love Evagrius of Pontus, uh, who was another desert father. He summarized it best. He goes, you want to know God? He goes, first, know yourself. In other words, the pathway to God inevitably passes through self-knowledge. Love that. The pathway to God inevitably passes through self-knowledge to him. It's both and. It's not either or. All right. 
Ah, revolutionary. Eighth axiom, eighth truth of emotional empathy leadership is this. You have to disrupt false peace in order to have true peace. You have to disrupt false peace in order to have true peace. Now, this comes out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Uh, and, and, and actually, the, the next Beatitude that follows that is about persecution and being reviled and insulted, etc. What Jesus is saying this, and he models this for us in his life, that the way to true peace will never come by pretending that what is wrong is right. This is important enough to say it again. The way of true peace will never come through pretending that what is wrong is right. Now, we receive peace from God, and we're called to bring that peace into the world, whether it's our, in all of our relationships. But you see, a false peacemaker appeases or avoids conflict at all, at all times. You know, the false peace abdicates or shrinks back or, uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me. False peace says, get off my back. Or I'll just be a doormat, you know, won't have any backbone. Or I can appear nice, but really inside I'm, a, I'm aloof and I'm giving you the silent treatment. Or it's like, you know, it's almost like false peace is a person comes, a doctor is has a patient with cancer, but he doesn't want to tell him the bad news, but I have to do chemo and cut into him or give radiation uh, and he pretends everything is fine. The way of true peace will never come by pretending that what is wrong is right. So true peacemakers disrupt false peace. That's what we observe in Jesus. Uh, he, he defined that out of love for people, he actually passed through war with his family, his friends, his religious, the religious leaders. That's what he says in Matthew 10. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. In other words, that the sword will go right down the middle of family, says Jesus. That, again, you have to disrupt false peace to have true peace. Now, most of us, if not all of us, who are listening to this podcast. If you're in leadership, uh, who likes conflict? I mean, it's, it's, it's worse for most of us than, than getting flogged or arrested or death. But the way true peacemakers disrupt false peace is we look at Jesus and that's why in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course has two parts to it, Emotionally Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And we spent decades uh, working on how to help move people into true, being true peacemakers, how to have a clean fight versus dirty fighting, how to speak clearly, respectfully, and honestly and in a timely fashion how not to do dirty fighting, how to clarify expectations, how to be reflective about your values so you don't go in judging people, how to listen and enter their worlds like Jesus, that, that learning to love other people uh, and in many cases disrupting false peace is as important as prayer and Bible study. And just like Jesus refused to separate loving God and loving people, neither can we. And again, a little short little uh, personal assessment you can take. If you've never taken it, uh, I encourage it too. It's called the Emotionally Healthy Personal Assessment. Uh, and it helps you realize how emotionally mature I am I from an emotional infant to an emotional adult. And it looks at infants, child, adolescents, and adults, different categories and how you do grief and loss, etc., and how you do relationships. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. It's, it's I, tens of thousands of people have taken that 
inventory or assessment from around the world and I found it incredibly helpful. And if you've never taken it, again, please go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. Uh, it'll take a bit of courage. It'll only take you about 15 minutes, but you have to look at the results and see where you come out. And I hope it will get you on a journey that you'll not be a false peacemaker ever again, but you'll be a true peacemaker like Jesus and disrupt false peace as needed, when needed, for his sake and for love for the people's sake that surround you. All right, number nine, ninth axiom or truth. We lead out of our marriages or singleness as a living sign and wonder for Jesus. I'll say it again. We lead out of our marriages or singleness as living signs and wonders for Jesus. Now, we're not leaders who just happen to be mar married or single, but we lead out of our marriage or singleness uh, for Christ. So you know, think of it this way. It, again, this, this, this biblical theology was uh, is really part of our our history as a church over the last 2,000 years. We don't talk about it much today, but our first calling is to Jesus, to him, by him, and for him. So we're called to follow him, to be with him, for him. But our second calling is our vocation of either married or single. And so uh, we've got to walk that out uh, and be a living sign and wonder whether we're married or single. And there's two types of singles. There's vocational singles, who are called uh, to singleness for life. We see that in Paul. We see that in Jesus. He talks about it in uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 12 and following. But then there's circumstantial singles. Folks who are single would like to be married, but for that time being, you are living as a single leader for Christ. So again, the key anchor in truth in this is this, that, that uh, in emotionally leadership is the centrality of if you're married, your marriage, or if you're single, living out a healthy singleness. And again, I had a very bad theology. I can just give you my example as a married person. Uh, I, I saw, I, I wanted to marry someone that would double my ministry versus cut it in half. And my, my, I didn't see marriage as spiritual as prayer and Bible study and the Great Commission. It was, it was important, but it was kind of on the side. It was, I was a seek first the kingdom of God uh, and everything else will be added on to you. But it wasn't it wasn't a, a, I wasn't to be a sign of wonder by marriage. It wasn't where I was going to invest a lot of time and energy. It was just supposed to work well. Uh, and so Jerry and I were stable, but we were unhappy. And we hit a wall, uh, and God met us in our wall in our marriage, and we experienced a taste of heaven. We, and we fell in love again, but God gave us a vision and a theological vision over time. We, we've invested decades in learning and growing. What does it mean to be a living sign of wonder? Uh, in marriage over the last 28 years. And so we've learned a lot in that because secular marriage, just like secular singleness, is very different. I mean, I'm sorry, Christian marriage is very different than a secular marriage. Christian singleness is very different than secular singleness. And so our, you know, our, very often we have a very low standard. Uh, and uh, But God calls us to be living signs and wonders that taste and point to Jesus. And uh, if you're, so Ephesians 5.32 is the classic text for uh, marriage is a sign of wonder. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church that our, Paul talks about marriage, earthly marriage, but he can't talk about it without talking about the marriage of Jesus and the church. Because the whole point of the Bible from beginning to end is marriage. Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a tremendous marriage, and we've got Song of Songs in the middle, but God so loves the world that he wants to marry every one of us. Uh, and, uh, and so what Christian marriage is, it's, it's, a, it's a revelation 
of that God's love for the world, which is so, he died for the world, died for us, but he wants to marry all of us. He wants to be that close to us. And so earthly marriages are meant to be a sign and wonder to God's passionate love for the world. Earthly marriage points to something of our of the ultimate destiny of human beings, which is to be married eternally to Jesus, to be one with Jesus. It's the very meaning of why we're alive. And earthly marriage is prophetic. It points to the love of God here in the now. And it's like the trailer of a movie, uh, or a, a chapter, a free chapter in a of a book that you might read on Amazon. Uh, you want the whole thing, and so that's why marriage is not just for you; it's for the world. Well, same thing with sing singleness. I mean, in, in, there's no marriage in heaven because we'll all be fully married to Him. Uh, and so, in a sense, we're all evangelizing, going two by two, uh, or or as singles. We're going out there as a community, as married and singles. As signs and wonders pointing to Jesus, because the way we do our singleness, the way we do our marriages is radically different. Jesus is our first ambition, but our second is to live out our faith in our marriage and our singleness. And so I like, I like to call it often, it's almost like taking a monastic vow uh, that our whole life is informed by the vow we make to Jesus. Yes. And then as married people, uh, we've made a marriage vow. And so my whole life is uh, mar- is informed by that marriage vow. Well, if you're single, uh, uh, your whole life is informed by your relationship with Jesus. And so building healthy community, which is no small task, doing healthy self-care, again, no small task, having healthy relationships with the opposite sex, no small task, but you do it as a sign and wonder that points and tastes of Jesus. All right. Whew. There's a lot there, isn't there? Now, the 10th and final axiom or truth of emotionally healthy leadership is you are over-functioning when you do for others what they can and should do for themselves. You are over-functioning when you do for others what they can and should do for themselves. Now, listen, to quit over-functionings is foundational to all leadership and all healthy relationships. Without it, it's actually impossible to raise up healthy communities, uh, healthy leaders, to actually equip and release other people, to actually engage the world with the gospel in a way that's sustainable long-term. And that, so learning to not overfunction is a key task for every person and especially every leader. It requires discernment and courage. Now, again, overfunctioning is doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. In other words, it's that discernment of saying, okay, I, I don't want to do what really God's asked them to do. And so I don't want to, over-functioning per, can perpetuate immaturity. We see that in Exodus 18, Moses is, is self-sacrificing for the two, three million people he's leading, and uh, he's actually a bottleneck to their maturity and their growth. And, uh, and I, I know for myself, I've always been a lifelong problem solver for other people. And uh, I, I know what it's like to over-function, and I actually hurt people, and they're growing in Christ. I perpetuate their immaturity. Overfunctioning also prevent, prevents us from focusing on God's unique call for our own lives. In other words, Jesus said, I've completed the work, Father, you've given me to do. But unlike Jesus, we often get sidetracked from our life direction by overfocusing on other people. And when we overfunction for other people, they end up underfunctioning for themselves, and we actually lose sight of God's goals and values for us. And it's just, a, for me, it's been a constant uh, help for me to learn to not overfunction as I get greater and greater clarity in what God's asking me to do. But overfunctioning then really it does erode our spiritual lives. It's very insidious 
because we basically cross a line into running God's world for him versus just surrendering and trusting him with his people. And then finally, overfunctioning, it does destroy community. And I think we see that Mary and Martha uh, in Luke 10, where again, she's she's serving and distracted and doing all this work to serve Jesus, uh, but she can't see the negative impact that she's having on her relationship with Mary, on her own self, and it, it hurts the community. They end up in a conflict. Uh, we confuse caring about someone with having to take care of them all the time and eventually results in frustration or resentment or conflict. Again, just look at Mary and Martha, or just look at Martha in Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. Wow, what 10 amazing uh, axioms that I trust you will hold with you. Now, again, as I close out this podcast, I want to extend an invitation to you. We at Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, uh, this ministry is exploding around the world in so many exciting ways. And uh, we find ourselves standing for a lot of incredible doors uh, and enormous demand. And so we realize, oh, we've got to begin to ask for donors to join us uh, financially and partner with us so we can serve the global church, especially under-resourced countries where really this is so critical. So I want to invite you to financially partner with us today by going to emotionallyhealthy.org slash give and consider if God might be leading you to join us as we serve this next generation of pastors and leaders around the world and really equipping them and mentoring in the combination of monastic slowdown spirituality and emotional health for the sake of Jesus' mission in the world today. Thank you so much for considering that. So let me close by inviting you to still waters. You know, uh, Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters. Or Isaiah 30, in quietness and trust is your strength. Psalm 4, when you're on your bed, search your heart and be silent. Psalm 131, I've stilled and quieted my soul. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Blessing. The Hebrew be still means let go of your grip. and Let's surrender together to God and be attuned and get aligned with his purpose for our lives uh, on this short earthly pilgrimage he has for us. Blessings to you. Have a wonderful day. <music>